Will the congregation please open to the book of Mark, chapter 2, continue on, continuing on in our exposition of the same. Let us pray together. Lord God, we once again come before Thee. We thank Thee for the hearing of Thy Word, the singing of psalms and hymns. Lord, we now come to the preaching and hearing and receiving of Thy Word. Lord, we thank Thee for the Scriptures. We thank Thee for Thy perfect preservation of them, for Thy giving them to us for their inspiration, that they are profitable to our souls. Lord, please help this weak vessel to preach thy word, to make no mean display of such a glorious truth. Lord, please open the hearts and the ears and the minds Of these thy people, lead thy sheep, feed them, apply the word to our hearts. O Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please lead and guide us. Please cause thy word to be true food, true drink, to refresh our souls. to enliven us to fight the battle and empower us, O God. Lord, soon we shall be dead. But Lord, we look forward to being in thy presence. And we ask that we would use this word while we live. Win much glory for thee. We love thee and we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses. Mark chapter 2, hear the word of the Lord. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noised that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. 
But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. As far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation, Jesus Christ is the great physician. He binds up the wounds of his people and heals all their infirmities. While on earth, as we saw in the previous chapter during our exposition, Christ demonstrated his kindness, his sweetness to sinners in healing their bodily infirmities. But now we come before a passage that places before our eyes a far greater demonstration of Christ's love and grace. It reveals to us why he truly came and who he truly is. He is God, and he has come, as his own name declares, to save his people from their sins. The great theologian Anselm often pondered the question, Cur Deus Homo, or why did God become man? Now, it's interesting that he wrote such a large tome on the question, for the Bible plainly states it in just a few words. Why did Jesus come? Why was he made incarnate? In Luke 19.10, says this, The Son of Man, Jesus, is come to seek and save that which was lost. Luke 5.32, He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Mark 10.45, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. He didn't come to give us our best life now. He didn't come to help us through this life. He didn't come to make us feel better. He came to save us from our sins. After finishing his first great preaching tour, Jesus has returned to Capernaum. This is where we pick up. After it was noise that he was in the house, in verse 1, we read that straightway many were gathered together in so much that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. It's verse 2. Multitudes had gathered to hear the word. The Son of Righteousness, and I mean Christ can no more be hidden from view than the sun in the heavens. Where Christ is, there people will gather. But many at this time, and no doubt in our day as well, came only out of curiosity. Some vain curiosity. Few places were as faithless as Capernaum. And yet, no city in Palestine appears to have enjoyed so much of our Lord's presence during his earthly ministry, as did this city, Capernaum. It was the place where many of his miracles were worked, and many of his sermons delivered. But nothing that Jesus said or did seems to have had any effect on the hearts of the inhabitants of Capernaum. They were amazed, they were astonished. They were filled with wonder at his mighty works, but they were not converted. 
They lived in the full noontide blaze of the sun of righteousness, and yet their hearts remained hard. And they drew from our Lord the heaviest condemnation that he ever pronounced against any place except that of Jerusalem. In Matthew eleven twenty three and 24, Jesus says, Thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works, which have been done in thee, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. That's a pretty severe condemnation, a severe rebuke. And even in our text, as we read, we see that many came to hear, a multitude came to this house where Jesus was, this little mud house with a thatched mud roof. And as he stood at the door, so many were gathered that you couldn't even get to him. Yet, we only hear of one case of faith at all. In our passage, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And our text before us makes this plain. Let us look at three points. First, believing Christ's authority to forgive sins. Believing Christ's authority. Number two, doubting Christ's authority. And number three, witnessing Christ's authority. First, believing Christ's authority. The men saw their need and came to Christ. There was a man sick of the palsy. Palsy stands in the scriptures for any kind of paralytic disease. This man was unable to work. He was unable to provide for himself or, his, or for his family if he had a wife and children. He was unable to just go wherever he wanted. But he had to be borne up and carried around by others. He was at the mercy of and the kindness of those around him. He was truly in a miserable state. Our text tells us that he was born up of four and carried. Whether these were relatives or friends that carried him is of little importance. What is to be noted is that they had mercy on him and they showed him kindness. The great prophet of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, of whom they had heard so much, was now back in town. He was now back in Capernaum. The one who had done so much good so far, who had preached such wondrous things, who had said so many astounding words, taught so much about God and healed the sick, was now in their midst once again. They knew that they must have an audience with Jesus. They believed that he was this paralyzed man's only hope of ever being whole again. So they had heard of him with their ear. Then they believed upon him with their heart, and now they were coming to Jesus with their feet, bearing up their palsied friend. Let us notice a couple of things about this. First, what appeared to be this man's curse was actually his blessing was actually his blessing. He was paralyzed, and no doubt he suffered much because of this ailment. But from this ailment, he learned to be dependent on mercy. 
He had grown accustomed to relying on the kindness of others, the mercy of others, and was well acquainted with his desperate condition. This all prepared him for being dependent upon Christ. Do you see? Furthermore, if he had never been paralyzed, he might never have come to Christ whatsoever. What appeared to be his curse was indeed his blessing. His palsy, his paralysis was God's means of laying him low and preparing the way for his salvation in Jesus Christ. I imagine the man looking back in his old age on his life and having great gratitude, remembering his paralyzed state. Oh, infirmity, he might say. Thou wast the door through which I was brought into salvation. After death, which shall usher me into Christ's presence, thou wast my greatest blessing. Have we come to view the crosses laid on our backs as God's sweetest mercies to us? Hebrews 12, 7 says, Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Paul came to know that the thorn in his side, which was so bothersome and so painful to him, was actually God's kindness to him. It taught him humility. It taught him how to rejoice in his sufferings. It proved to him that Christ's grace was indeed sufficient for him. And that God's power is manifested most clearly in human weakness. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Now, dear congregation, do we improve our sufferings? Do we improve them? Do you search out and turn over every hardship in your life with an eye to spotting God's hand of providence and blessing in them? What does God have for you in your current hardships, dear believer? Our trials, our trials are God's gracious messengers, his angels, sent unto us to lead us to himself. This man came to know this, this palsied man, and so should we. Next, we see the kindness of the men who brought this palsied man to Christ, these four. The man who loves his neighbor best, dear believer, brings him to Christ most. The man who loves his neighbor best brings him to Christ most. What a blessing it is to have friends who take you to Jesus in your weakness, in your infirmity, who carry you up, bear you up on eagle's wings, and take you to the Savior. Paul exhorts us in Hebrews 3.13, Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So God's means of grace to constantly encourage us is one another. To constantly exhort one another and not grow weary of doing so constantly point each other to Christ. We can do more good, dear congregation, in pointing each other to Christ than in any other thing. These men loved their friend and demonstrated it by bringing him to Jesus. Let us not grow weary in doing well to one another, but let us always be looking for opportunities to bring one another 
unto Jesus. The next aspect we'll see about their belief in Christ's ability, his authority, is that the men persevered in trial. They came to Christ, but were immediately met with obstacles. Trials lay between them and Christ. Many of these people would have turned around. Many of us would have turned around and went home. But they pressed on, undeterred with the difficulties in front of them. There's two trials in front of them that we should look at. The first trial, it says that they could not come nigh unto him for the press. For the press. So many people had come. So many people had come out to see Jesus, to hear him preach and receive healing at his hands, that it says that there was no room to receive them. No, not even about the door. There had gathered such a large crowd that it was impossible to get to Jesus. The press means the crowd. Because of the crowd, they could not get to Jesus. Now, they did not let this dissuade them, though. As silly as it may sound, I have often heard Christians say that they will neglect prayer. They will put off praying and won't come to God because they feel that their concerns, their struggles are so petty, so insignificant, that they shouldn't even bother Jesus with him. He's only got a limited amount of time, you know. He has many other matters of greater weight, greater importance to attend to, they say. But such a mindset is nothing but doubt and pride. Doubt and pride. It is to look at the press around Jesus and assume that he is unable to help you. He's too busy. In so doing, we attribute weakness to Christ and strength to ourselves. Jesus is very busy. I shall not come. I have strength enough to handle and heal this small, petty issue. Another mindset is one that sees the press around Jesus. And by that I mean sees the many excuses that crowd out our vision of him. It sees our sins as too many. It sees our temptations as too manifold. Surely, I cannot come to Christ, says such a one. The ledger of my sins is too long. I shall add one more to it by refusing to come to him. Christian, this is contrary to New Testament religion. Jesus tells us to come to him when weary, when burdened with sin. By faith, we must get through the press unto Jesus. Get through the excuses. Get through the self-condemnation. And come unto Christ. The second trial that they were met with is that they uncovered the roof. They tried to go another way and found a roof. Once these good men saw the crowd, they found another way to Christ. See, they were determined. They would go through the thatched roof above Christ where he stood preaching if they could not get through the door. Neither a crowd nor a building could stand in the way of their faith. The man must get to Christ and nothing shall stop them from getting their friend before Jesus. Now we too 
dear congregation, must dig through the roof of unbelief and pride to let the man of faith which is within us down into the presence of Christ. Jesus honors a valiant effort. And he who makes much noise in coming to Christ shall surely get his attention. Notice that we must use the means of grace. We must climb the stairs outside of religion's edifice, like they did on the outside of the houses there, were stairs where you could get to the roof. But we cannot stop there at the roof of religion's edifice. No. I mean, we cannot only be in the church building for the means of grace. We cannot only be in here hearing the sermon, singing the songs, and reading the scriptures and stop there. To do so is to climb the ladder and stop at the roof. No. We must also improve this. We must improve these means of grace. We must be careful how we hear, as Jesus says. We must dig through the roof and get to Jesus. We must pray while we hear. We must believe while we sing. So that our dullness, our faithlessness, and our inattentiveness would not be a roof between us and Christ. We must dig through. Faith must break through and come to Jesus. Then what happens? They break through. They lower the man down. And it says that Jesus saw their faith in verse 5. Wondrous, Christ always has an eye to faith. He's always searching it out. If there be faith, is there faith in this one? Is there faith in that one? He always has an eye to faith. And those who come to him in faith shall never be turned away. Never be turned away. Their determination manifested the sincerity of their faith. The sincerity of their faith. Remember, the importunate widow was given justice by the unjust judge. Not because he cared for her, for the text tells us that he cared for no man, and nor did he fear God. But he gave her justice because she was persistent. Jesus gives the application. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him? Luke 18, 7. Let us learn, dear congregation, from the faith of these men and work at imitating it. Work at imitating it. If we come to Christ in faith, on account of our faith, will he receive us? Will he accept us? But true faith is persevering faith. True faith is unremitting faith. True faith is undeterred faith. Let us not fail to notice also in this passage the surprising words which Jesus utters to the paralyzed man once he is lowered before him. It's shocking. What does he say? It throws us off. The narrative is thrown off if you're careful while reading it by these words. He says, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Why does that throw us off? Heretofore, in chapter 1, He has spoken not like this at all. When people were brought to him for healing, he healed them. Now, they come to him for healing, and Jesus brings up his sins. Why? Why is this? 
Because up to this point, Jesus has been demonstrating his deity time and again through healing, through casting out demons. Now, he was to reveal the reason why he, the second person of the triune God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now is the time. The reason why he did the miracles, remember we covered this, the reason why Jesus even does miracles at all was not for the body's sake, but for the souls. For the souls. They were simply platforms upon which he could demonstrate his deity and give validation to his authority to forgive. They proved that he could, prove, that he could preach such a message. Let us keep this in mind throughout our pilgrimage to heaven, dear congregation. Christ is not concerned with our body or our temporal state as much as he is with our soul. What good is it for us to gain the whole world, Christ says, but to lose our very soul? Keeping this constantly before us will cause us to be heavenly minded, as we covered a few weeks ago. And being heavenly minded leads us to do the most earthly good and to persevere through the troubles of this life, knowing that as Romans 8:18 8, says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. <clears throat> Second point, doubting Christ's authority. Now this is the first of many encounters between Jesus and the scribes. These interactions usually go poorly. Notice that our text says that they were sitting in the home. They were sitting. They had come to spy out the work of Christ, for they were sitters. They wished to discredit it, since he had taken their place as teacher in Israel. About such men, such sitters, David speaks in Psalm 1.1. They are those who sit in the seat of the scornful. By scornful, David means those who despise and contempt God. The scribes had not come to rejoice, had they? They had not come to rejoice in Christ's works or his teachings, but to sit and to scoff at them and to find fault with them so that they could trap him. They did not participate in this service. They only sat and picked at it. How many today, we know of many, who enter into churches as judges rather than recipients They sit as scribes, syllable-catching, watching with a scornful eye as the sermon progresses. And if the pastor makes one misstep, if he misspeaks even once, or words something in a way that they don't like, and it's not exactly how they would want it, then they cast doubt on the whole sermon and cry, heresy, heresy. That pastor was no good. That sermon had nothing to offer. For at the 32nd minute mark, he put a word in that I don't like. Notice the stark contrast between the scribes who sat nitpicking and scoffing and the men who lowered the man down. The former, the scribes, 
came in doubt to hear Jesus. The latter came in faith. To the latter, those who came in faith, Jesus declares forgiveness. But for the former, the scribes, as long as they shall remain in the scorner's pew, they shall find no grace in the sermon. Though they didn't speak with their mouth what was on their heart, it says that they reasoned in their heart. The deep things of man, notice the deity of Christ again, the deep things of man are laid open before Christ, with whom we have to do. He did not need to be taught what was in man. Jesus needed no man to teach him what was in man. Because John 2.25 says he knew what was in man. He's God. In Hebrews 4.12 we read, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of what? The thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 Let us not then, therefore, dear congregation, falsely believe that we are safe from Christ's piercing eye in our mind or our heart. Our very thoughts and our very intentions as sinful people condemn us before Jesus. Sin in the heart is as plain before Christ as faith in the heart is. Notice that the thought of their hearts was this. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, surprisingly, the scribes are right. They're 100% correct. That's good theology. That's true. Away with the priest. Away with the papish monk. Away with the Pope's edict and his bulls. He is antichrist. He cannot forgive sin. So they were correct. It would be blasphemy for a man to assume the authority to forgive sin. That belongs to God alone. But they misapplied good doctrine, didn't they? For Christ was truly God as much as he was truly man. So in accusing Christ of blasphemy, they themselves were guilty of the same. Let us be careful, dear congregation, how... Let us be careful that we know who Jesus truly is, before we begin attributing anything to him. We can misapply good theology just as easily as we can form bad theology. Many people have misunderstood Christ and ended up blaspheming him. I mean, we hear constantly the refrains of evangelicals constantly repeating to themselves as though they need to be reassured, God loves everyone. Jesus does not judge anybody. They have to continue to tell themselves that, hoping that it's true. But their theology is wrong, and they have blasphemously, blasphemously applied it to Jesus. Let us make sure our picture of Jesus is the same as the Scripture's picture of Jesus, before we say anything about who Jesus is or isn't. But the scribes, though speaking these things in their heart, were found out, weren't they? They were found out by Christ. He says, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? So just as the men's faith 
could not be hid from Christ's eye, so too the doubt and scorn of the scribes was unable to be hid. He turns to putting their theology to the test. In verse 9 he says, Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy? Which one's easier to do? Which one's easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to speak words than to work miracles. However, Christ's point is this, that if he has the power of God to heal men, then he has the power of God to forgive men. Indeed, the forgiving of sin is a far greater miracle, dear congregation, than the healing of the body. Cancer to vanish overnight. An arm to regrow on a man. Eyes born blind to see. Scoliosis made straight. What is that to this? The forgiveness of sins. It has truly been said by many a theologian that the work of regeneration is a far greater work, a far greater miracle than the creation of the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the creation of the universe, Jesus created from nothing as he desired. Yet, In the recreation of a sinner into a saint, Jesus must work with a sinful mass of rotten humanity, tangled and ingrown in on itself. We would all like to see a miracle, or receive a miracle, wouldn't we? We would all like to see that. We would feel that it it would be a great strengthening agent to our faith. But let us remember that if we are Christian in this room, If we be Christian, then we have received the greatest miracle imaginable. We have been brought from death to life, from rebel to son, from sinner to saint. It is easier for God to heal our cancers than for him to forgive our sins. Yet this he has done And he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8.32 Third and last, witnessing Christ's authority. So we had believing Christ's authority, doubting Christ's authority, and now witnessing Christ's authority. Now we come to the purpose of the miracle. And indeed, of all of Christ's miracles. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And this is demonstrated in his divine ability to work wonders. After calling the scribes on their hidden sin, Jesus says to them in verse 10, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he is going to leave them without excuse, is he not? He begins by forgiving the man. And now he shall demonstrate his power and authority and right to do so by working a far less wonderful, but far more tangible, miracle. He turns to the man and he says, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. Christ has already declared the greater unto him. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And now he places his stamp of authentication upon it with the lesser. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. 
So for those present, those who are here witnessing, there was no longer any contesting the fact that Jesus was truly God. And as God, that he had the right and the power to forgive sins. His less wonderful deed of healing the body was now validated by his more wonderful deed. Dear Christian, this miracle stands in the scripture as a continuous authentication of Christ's authority to forgive sin. Indeed, even our sin. Those present were all amazed and glorified God. Should we not also be amazed and glorify God every time we think of our soul's salvation? Dear believer, hear me now. Do we daily open the pages of Scripture and turn leaf after leaf over and find in them a powerful Savior, a God willing and able to forgive? If that is not the case, if we do not find a Savior in those pages, and indeed our Savior, we may need new glasses or a new heart. But for us, who know that we are forgiven because we have come to Christ in faith, we ought to continually cultivate amazement for this fact and to always glorify this God who has been so kind to us. It is too easy for us to become hardened and apathetic for the wonder of our salvation to wear off. I remember 12 years ago, the wonder, the amazement, the joy that I had about being saved by Jesus Christ. How easily it wears off the deceitfulness of sin. But this is to the detriment of our souls to not cultivate that joy once again. It's to the detriment of our souls and it's to the offending of common sense. Common sense teaches us to be happy about it, to be joyous, to rejoice, to be amazed, to stand in awe and wonder. It's just stupid not to. We must keep our hearts soft and warm in the light of God's love. Jude, remember, tells us in verse 21 to keep ourselves in the love of God. That is, to keep ourselves in constant meditation of God's goodness to us in Christ. Nothing will make us more ready and more willing to live and to die for Christ than to have a heart that is always reminded and always ravished with thoughts of our free salvation in Christ Jesus. Now, have you not been saved, dear Christian? Have you not been born again? Is it not true that you have experienced unfathomable and the impossible, even, which is the forgiveness of your sins? Yet all things are possible with God, even the impossibility of your salvation. Thus, let us continually pray along with David in Psalm fifty-one, twelve: Restore unto me, he says, the joy of thy salvation. Believer, this palsied man rose up and returned to his home. So too we must rise up in light of our salvation and serve our God and rejoice 
You see, the Christian life isn't just going to happen to you. It's not just going to happen to you. You have to cultivate. Do you feel dry in your faith? You are to blame. Do you feel distant from God? You are to blame. Because even if he has withdrawn himself from you, it is only so that you would go after him, and yet you stay seated. You must pray constantly, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Dear congregation, in closing, let us continue to come to Christ in faith. Let us not be deterred by any trial or put off by any doubt. No. Let us come to him. Let us carry one another constantly to the cross, always pointing out our common salvation and rejoicing greatly together in what our blessed Savior has done for us. Now, every age has needed the gospel. Every age. But I dare say our age more than others, possibly. The more this year goes on, the more I believe that. I fear that we live in a Capernaum age, an age that has seen such blessing from God for so long, where most of the wonderful works of God in the past 500 years have been done has hardened us. We are now like Capernaum. We shall have the hardest judgment. Yet, let us not despair, dear believer. Let us not despair. For there may yet be some palsied men, borne up by their friends, who are willing to come to Christ. Continue then to offer Christ to the world. As that great hymn says, Through death into life everlasting he passed, and we follow him there. O'er us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. And now we say, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We thank Thee for the work of Christ. Lord, help us to see our infirmed state in sin and continuously and constantly come unto Thee for healing, for fellowship. Help us to keep ourselves in the love and light of Thy Son to this transient and fleeting life will be most profitable to those around us, to our own souls, and to thy glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.